totally agree. Like I say, I mean, my, most of my education after sort of 12, 13 was either in a structured unit, a secure unit, a secure training centre or a young offenders. That's the only time I got any stability and education. How do you feel now? How do you feel now is a podcast that brings people together with similar life stories to talk about their shared experiences, their histories, and the way that has impacted on their lives and who they have become today. We're going to have a conversation about how they have or haven't reconciled with their past and how they cope by living with it in their present. This is a safe space for us to share and be vulnerable with each other, having survived to tell the tale, inspired by my memoir, Little Big Man. Today, I will be in conversation with Ben Ashcroft, Ben is also an author and has written his memoir called 51 Moves, where he shares about his own experiences as a young boy growing up in the care system. We are going to have an open, honest conversation about our journeys through various state institutions, our addiction and recovery, and where that has taken us as adolescents, and more importantly, how it has affected us as adults in everyday life. Wow, it's so great to be back here again. Um, can't believe it's episode three, and and I've got Ben Ashcroft with me, brother Ben. You there? I am. It's nice, nice man. Pleasure to have you on board. Um, in episode two, I had Mike McKenzie. I got a really big up Mike again um, for a wonderful conversation that we had. Um, he's him as a foster carer, and Mike is also a director with a brilliant film that is just directed called Belonging. So look out for that, guys. Honestly, it's fantastic, you know, and, and moving. And it's the story of a young boy going through the foster care system and his perspective. Um, ben, uh, it's, it's again, pleasure to have you on board. And, and you know, you've also written a book yourself, um, 51 Moves, yeah? Yep, certainly have. We'd lovely to hear more about your book as well. Tell me, because, you know, I've, I've just written my autobiography or memoir, Little Big Man, and we have a lot in common, a lot of similarities. We've kind of both gone through the system in different areas of our lives. Um, tell me, man, what, what was your journey like, you know? So my journey through care kind of started when I were 11. Um, my mum, she didn't have the skills, I suppose, and the kind of skills to help us because they were me my brother and my sister and you know we were quite challenging before mm-hmm. we went into care you know um and my mom had been in care as well but i didn't know that when i wrote my book um otherwise i would have had more compassion and more understanding and empathy around that you know i just thought she abandoned me and you know that were it but i didn't realize the experience she had and you know now with hindsight and time that's passed since wow Publishing my oh. book and it's so been so your mum had been through care? Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, again, similar similar to my mum, because my mum had also been in, you know, she was in what like a nunnery, you know. Um and she had gone through some stuff which I talk about in the book. So you're saying you didn't find that out until after you wrote your book? No, I only found out this a few years ago that she were in care and she had a horrendous time herself, you know, and then wow. it sense to me then after finding out i wish i'd have known before i wrote my book 
but I didn't and I found out afterwards from somebody else and it, they told me she had kind of a you know a bad upbringing and it, it was pretty brutal you know so it's, it's totally understandable now you know why she didn't have the skills and and you know enough I don't know the word to you know suppose deal with our challenging behaviors as we got older you know it, she kind of obviously did the best she could but you know and and in the end was it a matter of so you're saying you thought she abandoned you well she did i mean it, it went near christmas and she didn't come home for a few days um and there were me and my sister and brother there and we were eating we didn't know how to cook so we were kind of eating jam sandwiches and custard creams and just all basic stuff you know the house were always clean and tidy there were always food in the cupboards you mm -hmm. know that that wasn't kind of an issue it was kind of like she went because i think she was struggling with drinking i think as well at that time and she kind of went but we didn't really know that she just didn't come back for a few days so i run police you see after a few days because i didn't know if she was dead alive or where she was i see right what you oh, powerful yeah. yeah, then the social workers turned up within half an hour at police and, and that kind of stuff. And, and in that time, my sister went to one of her friends, which I'm glad she did. And me and my brother went to a local children's home a couple of miles from where we lived. Mm, yeah. And that's how the kind of admission to care came along. Right. Yeah, so similar with, with, again, what I spoke about um, right from episode one is my mum, you know, suffering from schizophrenia and the impact that had on you know her of course her mental well-being but more, most importantly the impact that had on myself and my three siblings yeah. and you know I'm, I'm hearing i can relate to what you're saying you know that, that again that feeling of abandonment that we've got our main caregiver our mums who who are struggling to take care of us that you know um, and I'm, and it's funny, as you was talking, there's a part in my book where I talk about my mum went missing for like two days, you know, um, and, and the social worker come around knocking on the door and I had answered the door, you know, and she, she said, is, is your mum in? I said, no, my mum's not in. My mum ain't been on for the last couple of days, you know. Yeah. Um, I felt like a bit of a grasp, but I, at that time, you know, I'd also... We, we would miss our mum, do you know what I mean? We wanted to see her, you know. Um, and she asked me, she said, do you know where your mum is? I said, yeah, she's at her friend's house. I can take you there. And I don't know how I did it. I, I don't know, I was, I was pretty young, about seven, eight, whatever. I, we lived in Stoke Newington at the time, yeah? And my mum was visiting her friend in a place called Holly Street. Now, Holly Street, it's a good, good drive, do you know what I mean? But I managed to drive that social worker, you know, well, not, I didn't drive the car, <laughs> but take that social worker in her car with me and my, my two sisters all the way to Holly Street, park up, found the block, went wind through the corridors and found the door of her friend's place, knocked on the door. Wow. And my mum, when she opened it, you can imagine the look on her face, in it, you know what I mean, with social services, and all her kids at the door, she's in there smoking weed, bless her. And um, the social worker had a really good chat with her. And, you know, afterwards, as soon as that door shut, my mum gave me the, the one rasp box in my face, you know. <laughs> that I, for the next couple of days, I struggled to hear out of one ear. But the point I'm making is 
you know, there goes, you know, that, that, that unable to cope, you know, unable to cope with raising their children because of their own struggles. And then to hear that your mum went through the system, you know, and had her own struggles herself, that's, that's quite powerful. How did you find out in the end about her being in care? Well, it were actually, I, would, I went to church with um, my girlfriend and her mm. friend. And one of the men that were at church were married to my mum's sister. Mm -hmm. They're not married anymore. He's with a new lady now. And, and he kind of told me over a coffee and stuff like that. And he just said that my mum had a really hard upbringing and she had it tough and, and all this kind of stuff. And it kind of sunk in and it was like, wow, you know, it makes things more understandable for me. Yeah. You know? um, because obviously breaking that cycle of care is very, very hard to do. Mm. Um, you know, mm. and if, if you've been in, in care yourself, your children are so many times more likely to end up in care and that kind of thing. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, the cycle didn't get broken. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. I can't really, you know, judge my mum for that. I can't be resentful for that. I can't be angry. I used to be angry for it. Whereas I'm not now, once I found out she'd been in care, it gave me such a better understanding of, how it happened and why we'd ended up in care, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was angry for a long time, you know. I didn't find out where my mum was until I were in a children's home for a few days. And then they called us in office and they're like, we found your mum, she were in Blackpool, no. um, quite far from me. Um, so we wouldn't have been able to drive and find her. Yeah. Um, and she was kind of drunk, apparently. And apparently she said um, she'll have my sister back, but me and my brother, she don't want back um because we're, we're too challenging and she she doesn't have the capability to look after us we're too challenging at that point mm. well, that's powerful isn't it do you know what i mean when you like you know again i can relate to wanting to go home and not being able to go home do you know what i mean yeah. and being told that your mum's not capable of looking after you um and it's like a it's like being HMP, do you know what I mean? You know, for, for those listening, HMP is when you get a sentence on Her Majesty's pleasure, and but you don't get an uh, uh, LDR date, a latest date of release. You don't get any date of release. And this happens to a lot of youngsters who've committed some serious crimes. They get HMP, so there's no date of release. So you don't know when you're going home and it's just down to Her Majesty's discretion or whatever it is to let you out whenever they feel that you've learned. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For me, being in the care system in them early days, I felt like I was HMP. Do you know what I mean, Ben? I do. Like, I mean, coming back to the point of being in care, you know, you like you mm -hmm. change your surroundings, your own pillar, your own covers, your own surroundings, you know, oh. you into, into a basic room with just a cover there and a mattress yeah. and you know, some drawers it's not like your home surroundings everything changes you know and it's adapting to that new setting that you're at which i didn't do very well absolutely again hitting the nail on the head for me again one of the things i talk about in little big man is the experiences of the smells the different smell of of do you know what i mean like a foster, foster parent's house or the smell of the children's home you know Yep. And as you said, you know, the, the sheets on the bed, just the sheets, the wallpaper, everything comes into play, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it attacks 
you know, your whole six senses, you know, things that we would take for granted. As a kid, they really highlighted because um, it just made me miss my my home more, my mum more, my bedroom more, my bed more. You know what I mean? You know. Um, Sorry, going after you. Yeah. It was one of the toughest things adapting to that, you know, and especially then when you find out, you know that she didn't want us back and then you know sorry for swearing but in my head it was like well fuck it then you know i'm sorry for swearing but that, that that's how i thought at that point and i quickly got involved in disruptive behavior and refusing mm -hmm. to go to bed and this kind of stuff and quite quickly well within a week of being in care then i got arrested for refusing to go to bed and i got my first charge as section 5 public order offense for refusing to go to bed and whilst i were in police custody a social worker came and then told me i'm moving 11 miles away to foster parents so within that week i'd been split up from my mum my sister and now my brother and i have a section five charge pending going to court for for refusing to go to bed which is absolute madness ridiculous ridiculous i remember when i read that in your book i was like what are you mm. kidding me and i must say i love the title of your book 51 moves I thought I had it bad, but 51 moves. Brilliant title, man. Um, but yeah, you know, when I hear that, I thought, flip. You know, I've lost count of the amount of times I, I moved. I was moved myself. But in hearing that, what it evokes in me is that powerlessness of being moved around in, this, in the system, not being able to have any say on where you're sent or or do you know what i mean you know um so i can totally relate to, to to the title of your book man and you know just powerful that you know we as we spoke earlier you know not not all of us come out the other end not all of us are able to write a memoir <laughs> do you know what i mean and, and share our stories you know um, what led you to 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 maybe you know be able to write your book, man? So kind of, I got my care files um, from when I were in care, and they're supposed to take about forty days through data protection before you get them. Well, mine took nine months, um, mm -hmm. and they had to employ someone else to come in to go through them and redact them and take all other bits out that they didn't want me to read and that kind of stuff. So I got all these, and there were six massive files. Mm -hmm. um, and I took a lot of stuff out and the guy who did it, who came in independently to go through it and sort my files out, like I said, it took nine months instead of 40 days. Um, but for me, when it put black marker on the um, stuff that they didn't want me to see, if I held it up to the light, I could see through it. So I still got to see everything. Mm -hmm. Not that they wanted me to see that. Obviously, that's why they marked it out. Um, but I, I, I read my files, you know, and in within that files, you know, there was like two pieces of paper out of the whole files that were positive, that were written by a residential care worker mm. um, and the rest of it were negative. And then I also within there got um, a list in chronological order of the moves that I'd have and the, and the placements that I'd been to. And, you know, some lasted only 24 hours and I were gone. Right. You know, it, that's how I kind of came to it. And someone said to me, why don't you write a book? And I thought, longest thing I've ever wrote before that 
was a two-sided piece of paper from a young offenders institution. My grammar, punctuation and spelling were horrendous. I didn't know how to use a computer or computer illiterate at that point. And mm -hmm. I spent about nine months trying to work out this old tower computer and how it all worked. And, you know, I mean, I'm lucky I got help from a, an assistant professor. Mm -hmm. He edited it for me, which I was so grateful for because, you know, it was just like, I didn't even know about paragraphs and chapters and all this kind of stuff you know i didn't i genuinely didn't and and i got help you know and over the time i've learned now how to spell and punctuation and grammar i'm still not amazing but i'm way better than i was <laughs> totally i think um, strangely because um when i first when i started writing mine um is that sorry before i started writing i was doing the research and you know you you, you know all my notes and whatnot and i did contact the social services to see if I could get my file. But there were so many bloody hoops to jump through. Um, and I said, I could get it. And but I just thought, you know what? Let me just crack on, man. Do you know what I mean? Because part of there's a part of me as well that well, I just don't want to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, at all, you know. Um, and it's like, okay, well, we could do, but you have to do this, you have to fill out that, we have to get the consent of this and all of this stuff. Um, and I just cracked on with it. But, you know, going back to what you were talking about, you know, especially the part where you've got section for not bloody going to bed. Um, I would, I was one of those kids that would kick off in the children's home. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And again, there's a part I talk about when I'm being held down. <laughs> again, it reminds me of being banged up and, and you know, screws, are, you know, holding you down, you know, and carting you off down the block. Here I am in the home. They had their alarm that they pressed, they had their own, you know, emergency alarm. And um, boom, you know, here I am being held down. I've got three, four of them on top of me. I'm like eight years old or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? I do. I've been in very, very different ways because there yeah. was no kind of restraint policy back then. They just no. did what you know, just flattened you basically and twisted you because different positions. And you know, yeah. nowadays, I mean, I'm lucky. I, I did um, price training, mapper training in restraint because I, as an adult, I worked with kids in care, so I learned some yeah. stuff. And I can tell you now. The, the restraints I wore should have been called assaults because they weren't restraints. There was nothing I learned that I got done on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, back then, things were completely different. Do you know what I mean? I think we're similar age. Do you know what I mean? Seven is, eight is. It was, there was no, there was no handbook. There was no, no handbook about um, health and safety and you know, how you, you know, how you manage, as you said, you know, um, restraints in a healthy way. It was just that if you kicked off, that was it. Boom. That alarm went, everyone was on you, <laughs> you yeah. know. I've and got one time I'm, 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 I'm under a pile of them. And again, you know, you know, I don't want it to sound like it's totally one way. They're trying to do their job as much as, you know, I'm kicking off over whatever I can't even remember. But I remember one time I was flattened. It was a summer. Everyone had on flip-flops and whatnot. And I just remember seeing this toll that was in my view and it was right near my face. So I just grabbed hold of this toll with my bloody mouth and I just bit down on the toll. 
And I held that toll hostage, man. And I was like, you get out of my room. Get out of my room. Get out of my room. <laughs> yeah. I ain't letting go, you know. Again, I write, I talk about this in the book, but, um, you know, again, you know, they, if things were different then. Yeah. Big time. It was so I've got a paragraph in my book here, which I'll read quickly because it's ideal for what yeah. we just spoke about. And it's please, only do. please do. As any kid who's grown up in care will know, kicking off is an all-encompassing and somewhat melodramatic term used by adults who are paid to care, describing any disruptive behaviour by a child or young person. The chances are, by kicking off, they are actually simply trying to tell you something. Often this behaviour will include shouting, swearing, throwing stuff, and basically any behaviour which a young person uses to hide their fears and feelings. It can be feared by adults, provoked by adults, and definitely avoided by adults if they are willing to explore why the young person is demonstrating this behaviour through talking to them and listening to what they have to say. Yeah. Wow, powerful. And you know what? So apt and true. And, you know, people go on courses today to learn this stuff, you know, because it's all about, you know, because you think about it. I mean, back then for me, you know, listening to what you've just read, imagine if we had been listened to, if we had been heard, because, you know, we was talking earlier about the education system, yeah? and growing up in a different time where you went to school, you had the teachers, you had your headmistress or headmaster or whatever, stuff's going on in your own life, but either they didn't have the resources or they just didn't know or they just didn't care because they were just overwhelmed with trying to take care of 30, how many kids in the classroom, do you know what I mean? And my experience, I mean, today, if you look on what kids have today, they got counselors, they got psychologists in some schools, do you know what I mean? They've got, what do they call them, TAs, um, a, a teaching assistant, is that right? TA, yeah, teaching assistant. So there's, I think there's much more support than there was for us. So in, in, our, in you know, in, in relating that to what you've just read in that paragraph, you know, an adult taking the time just to listen and look out for the signs of when a child does kick off. Because that's that child screaming for help, isn't it? You yeah, know? For sure. And wanting to be heard, wanting to be listened to, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and today, I think there's more resources in place for that child. I mean, there definitely can be more done and i think as time moves forward we're constantly learning we're constantly catching up with the system do you know what i mean or the system is catching up with us whichever way you want to put it you know yeah i think it was more difficult for teachers back then you know i mean even in my files and stuff even though i knew myself you know when i went into care and i started getting moved and i started committing offenses as it says in my files ben had a stark change in his behavior exact words that's what I read and I knew that personally anyway I knew that because I felt it myself I felt that I had to start changing into the environment I were in the surroundings I were in the people I were in the company of you know because before I went in care I, I love fishing football rugby that kind of stuff when I went into care it were all about crime drugs drinking mm. running off being arrested locked up 
and it's a stark change from playing football, fishing, rugby, to then being immersed in this life, what became normalised as committing offences, running off and, you know, committing crimes to pay for drugs and, and other crimes, just needless stuff. But at the time, it, it were, I don't know, that's just what everybody did around me. Yeah, yeah, totally. And again, I can relate to that. Do you know what I mean? Um, going through the system where you end up becoming, you know what I, you know what I call it is, I call it the fuck it button. I don't care anymore. Fuck it. I don't care anymore. Do you know what I mean? I remember, I can remember, and again, I talk about this in the book of how I've just became more and more cold inside because yeah. of, I felt like the system had let me down. Yeah. You know? And I, and again, you know, having different social workers, you know, I was speaking with Mike on the on the last episode about social workers not saying goodbye. <laughs> just simply just not saying goodbye. That used to tear me up. I would turn up and there's a new person there. And I'm like, oh well what happened to such and such? And 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 you you're just being transitioned from one person to the other, but with no healthy ending, no closure. So therefore, it tapped into my abandonment issues. It tapped into my rejection issues. It tapped into my trust issues. So then the next person that came along, they couldn't get a word out of me. They'd be like, how are you? How was your skin? I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, one syllable word, you know. Um, and then after that, that was it. My journey took me on a rebellious streak where... It was me against the world, me against the world. And, you know, coming back to, you know, children being cared and being accelerated through the criminal justice system, justice system, because of, you know, because of our, again, going back to your paragraph, not being heard, not being listened to. So therefore there's something wrong with us. Do you see what I mean? I do. I kind of pick up on what you were just saying then about being cold. And that's for me, it brought a lot of stuff back then. You know, like if someone were called to me, mm. I'd be freezing to them. Mm. If I saw evil, I'd be more evil. You know, mm. I'd always take it to that extreme or that next level. Because when you're getting moved around system and all over the country, and I'm on my own and I'm moving to different areas of country, some places that are very rough, and, and potentially there's a lot of bullies there that try to take you for an yeah. idiot. Yeah. And I would go to extremes so it didn't happen to me, you know, yeah. because being bullying so much in different places. And I, I always said I won't let them do that to me. Yeah. And, I, you know, like I said, I adapted to my surroundings and I didn't want people to take me for a mug at that point. And like I said, I would take it to extremes. And I had to do that to survive, okay. I think. Ultimately, I had to survive. And if I didn't act the way I acted and did the things that I did, it could have been very different and I would have had a really, really shit time, even though it was really crap anyway. It yeah. could have been worse. Yeah. And, you know, going back to, you know, the education system, that for me, there just wasn't enough support there mm -hmm. to help me in any way. And being a male, then growing, then growing up to be this male adolescent, you know what I mean? And 
I'm now feared, yeah, because of my past. I'm now feared because of my past and because I, they know me now to kick off. You know, I go into school, kids all know of me and fear me because I was one of those kids you didn't want in your class. I was yeah. one of those kids you didn't want to come to school and bump into me. Do you know what I mean? So I would take out all my angst that was going on because I wasn't being heard, because I didn't have the support mechanism in place and I didn't have a child counsellor and all this stuff. I would take it out on the kids and the teachers. Do you know what I mean? And before you know it, well, you know, I'm in these, I'm in young offenders, you know, and again, that's another education in itself. You know, um, when you, when you get put behind the walls, you know, and, and, you're now, now you're a part of that system. Now it's almost like it feels like it's too late now, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? I've, I felt like I, I'm in it now. This is it. This is my life. <laughs> you know, there yeah. was no turning back. And then the drugs and everything else, you know? Totally agree. Like I say, I mean, my, most of my education after sort of 12, 13 was either in a structured unit, a secure unit, a secure training centre or a young offenders. That's the only time I got any stability and education um, because school, they sent me to kind of this naughty boy called learning by achievement and it were kind of for the kids that are more challenging and have these certain behaviours and stuff like that. But my behaviours were even too bad for there and kind of no one wanted to teach me, no one wanted me around and by this time I were already heavily taking drugs at that point and drinking and committing offences so very quickly I was in structured units, secure units and secure training centre in Kent in Maidstone. I was one of the very first people to go to that when it very first opened and it was run by group four and the only good thing about Medway Secure Training Centre was the education. That's where I got some kind of stability and education but the other side of it run by group four it was horrendous like the beatings we'd get and they'd walk around with shields and they'd name them like armadillo and stuff and then when a button got pressed on each unit they'd run on there'd be no kind of engaging you or talking to you they'd just literally smash you with a shield and twist it up and it were horrendous there was some bad assaults there on on, on kids that were there you know and myself there's a a little passage from my book that I'm going to share with you as well. And it just highlights how I was feeling at the time, yeah? Now I'm like 1985, so what, I was 15, around 15 or something like that. So it's got here. By the end of 1985, my life was documented through a series of four wars. After the concrete cell at Stoke Newton Police Station on the night of my arrest, there were the four walls of the of the stagnant youth courts at Highbury Corner Magistrates, looking more like a church covered in dark wooden panels with pews running in the middle and down the, down the sides. This was where my case was being heard. The next four walls were the youth court holding cell, short and narrow with glossy white tiles like a butcher shop, where I was placed until my name got called and a sentencing date handed to me. A few weeks later, and I was back in the same cell, waiting to hear my fate. The district judge had no choice, he said. Because I refused to tell the police the name of my accomplice, he wouldn't let me off lightly. 
as the words six months and detention center echoed out, I could feel my insides folding in. With good behavior, you can be released in three, he continued, as if he was sending me down to the shops. You know, yeah. again, powerful with, with the experiences of going back to your paragraph as children not being heard and where it can take us within the system. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, to be fair, I, you know, I look back on, on the crimes that I were committing at, at that point and, you know, I look back and I actually deserved them sentences. Mm. I could have got a lot bigger sentences than I actually got, you know, and it's something I sit and I, I do think about. And, you know, I'm not proud of any of that stuff. And, you know, I'd hate for my own son to do them things. I wouldn't be very proud of him, put it that way. And I'm not proud of myself for doing what I did. I did a lot of bad things to people and it wasn't I hear you. fair, really, you. in back now with inside. I totally, I mean, I hear you. I'm not sure I would say you deserved it. I, I hear what you're saying, though, yeah? Um, I think for myself, okay, I get it. Yes, there are consequences for actions. Yes, there is consequences for when we behave in a certain way. But if I think about, and especially after writing this book, if I think about the damage that was done to me as a child in the sense of, you know, like you talked about, not being heard, no one to turn to, you're just thrown into the system. You almost become a product, you know, it's like you've become a product of that system, like that self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? You know what I mean? Then at what point, does, what, at what point is the child being heard? Or what point does the child get heard? So that them wounds can finally heal. And for me, it wasn't until years later that when I found recovery after going through hell and back, you know what I mean, with the, the detention centres, the ball you know, the, the young offenders and the prisons and all of that. It was only until I found recovery that I was actually introduced to my inner child, little Stanley, and, and I had to do the work around, oh, hold on a minute, there's this kid inside of me who's raging raging with the system, raging with what happened to him and what he went through, you know. Um, so I found for me, I, 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 there's an amends that needs to be made there. There's with myself, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm still kind of struggling with that stuff, if I'm being totally honest with you. You know, I'm very hard on myself. Um, no one can be harder on me than I am on myself, you know. Um, I've got a lot of work to do on myself, you know. I struggle with resentments and anger and all that kind of stuff. And it can pop back up now, even nowadays, you know, but I'm doing everything I can to kind of stop that. And, you know, it's like mental health-wise, I've got adjustment disorder. I've got complex PTSD. So I've got a lot of disorder in my life that I'm medicated for, and I need to turn that into order and live uh, productive and good life which i know i can mm. but i have to work at this stuff and i have to address the core issues as a child because i can quite quickly go back to in my head living 
and the experiences of a child. And I need to leave that in the past so I can move forward. It's took me so many years to accept that I need mental health medication. And when I take that medication, things are all right. But I can get to a position in my head and I'll stop taking them. And very quickly it can change and it takes me to a very bad place where I'm back using, I've relapsed mentally also with addiction and you know the the damage that i cause and the pain i cause to other people around me you know i'm seeing it so much more because you know as you know i've had a recent relapse and it's yeah. been it's been horrendous you know like in literature it says oh it's unmanageable and stuff it were unbearable it were horrendous and the damage i caused and the relationships i've damaged through me doing that is heartbreaking to be honest and it, it it kills me every day because as you know you've met my other half in london and stuff which at the moment obviously it's 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 not on and you know i totally understand why and i totally own that stuff you know i've caused these issues from doing what i were doing and you know i can't be resentful or angry towards her you know impacts other people around you it's like throwing a brick in water and then ripples around you spread out and it damages yeah. it's, it's caused their harm it's caused the parents harm who have been nothing but good to me they've mm -hmm. treated me so well in the three years and it you know it, it's heartbreaking to see that because i care about them a lot and it's you know it's it, oh. it's same for my sister you know she's stuck by me through thick and thin and it's mm -hmm. You know, you don't understand and realise the damage you're causing when you're doing it, and and it's become very apparent to me recently. You know, um, and you and know it, what? That's great that you're you you have this awareness now because, brother Ben, it takes time to heal. Yeah. It takes time to heal, bro. You know, and I I hear your pain, I hear your sorrow. You know what I mean? I hear your regret. Yeah. You know, I I my journey for myself being in recovery and looking at self was, I had to make peace with my inner child. Do you know what I mean? I had to make amends to him. You, you know what I mean? So that I could then, if I could be there for my inner child, be there for little Stanley, then I can be there for others. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I had to realize quickly, I had to do that work around forgiving myself, you know, um, learning how to be a parent to little Stanley, learning how to be a father to little Stanley, a mother to little Stanley, do you know what I mean? Yeah. All the stuff that, all that healthy stuff that wasn't there right from the beginning, do you know what I mean? I do. And there's a lovely saying which goes, and I'm sure you heard this, you know, give me a child to he or she is seven and I will show you the man or the, or the woman. You know, yeah. and I think them first seven years spent on planet Earth are so imperative, so imperative. It really gets in the nuts and bolts of our DNA. And your testament to that, your testament to that, like to this day, you're going through your stuff. Do you know what I mean? But yet you're still willing to do the work and look at yourself. And I've got nothing but love and admiration for you for that, by the way. Do you know what I mean? I just want to say it takes a hell of a lot of courage. You know, they say the longest journey any man or woman will ever make is from the head to the heart. Yeah. You know, from the head to the heart, because we're all we're all busy escaping. No one wants to, you know, you know, no one really wants to look on this stuff. 
You know, we want to run away, we want to escape. If it's down to gym, work, drugs, alcohol, don't matter. Long as we don't have to look at ourselves. Now it's the, you know, the TV and YouTube and TikTok and TikTok and Twitter and TikTok. And, you know, I can't keep up with it all, mate. Yeah. But you know what I mean? But it takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage to do what you're doing now. And, it's, and which is looking at yourself, you know. Um, and for myself, my experiences, as you know, I've been in recovery for, for quite some time, yeah? Even, you know, it's been, what, 28 years now. Awesome. But even still, Brother Ben, even still, first and foremost, you know, let me not be fooled, I'm a human being. I'm a human being. Dullable, fallible, I make mistakes. Sometimes I have to make the same mistake before I learn. You know, decades of recovery doesn't remove that. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I still have to do the work to this day. Not because I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to use or whatever. It's more to do with like, okay, how do I learn to keep loving myself? How do I learn to maintain what I've been given, which is the gift of recovery and the gift of, you know, being able to, you know, set the record straight. How do I maintain that? Yeah. You know what I mean? How do I keep on growing and, and not become complacent? You know, and every now and then, don't get me wrong, the little hackney kid rears his head, boy. And if you, if you, you know what I mean? If you talk to me, you know, not too nice, sometimes I can react to that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I've I've learned over the years through parenting myself is okay, let's not react, but let's actually act. Let's take action and not react. Do you know what I mean? I do, and that's where I'm at right now. Is you know, I've said so many things so many times, it's understandable why the words become more meaningless. Mm. And it's more action, you know. I need to less talk, more action, and fully surrender to the fellowship and do what I need to do. You yeah, know, yeah. that's what I need to do. And it's like, I've got a friend, a good friend, Dave, and he's struggling at the moment. And he always says, well, I ain't got it boxed off because I've got years and stuff. And it's about just for today. We've only got today. And if yeah. I can everything in one day, things are manageable. And Absolutely. that's what I'm trying to get into my psyche now. And there's also, like you were saying about love, I struggle with love because of the way I've been brought up. I don't love many people and it takes me a long time to love them. But if I do, I'm 100% committed to them, loyal to them, faithful to them, everything to them. And it's like they say, as you'll have heard, let them love me until I can love myself. And that is the process I'm going through at the moment is to like myself more. You know, I'm helping other people, but I'm not very good at helping Ben. And that's what I need to concentrate on right now. And loving Ben, because, you know, mate, look, honestly, I can so relate what, to what you just shared, you know. This, you see this word love? Coming from a broken home, coming from a dysfunctional family where I didn't witness this, this, this love between a man and a woman. I didn't witness this, a healthy loving relationship, yeah? So let's say I desire a healthy, loving relationship. Most people do, yeah? We all desire a healthy, loving relationship. But how do you know what that looks like if you've never witnessed it? How do you know 
what that is if you've never had it per se. Do you know what I mean? And when you do have it, how do you recognize it? You know. Because I think I've recognised it now from losing something that meant so much to me. And that's how I found out that I had a strong love and have a strong love for certain people, my son, my sister, mm -hmm. and a few other people. Like I've got a couple of friends, both called Dave, and you know, they've supported me and they've been there solid 100% with mm. my relapses. And they've always sent me a text and they've always been there when I, when I come back out of that dark, dark place. And they've always been there and not judged me. And do you know what? I can, you know, I'm I'm very privileged and lucky to have a few people around me. I mean, my circle is quite small and I keep it small for yeah, a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Know? The people that are in my circle, I'm a hundred percent loyal to them, love them, and would do anything for them. Um, apart from when I'm in a bad place or I've relapsed, because I'm not reliable when I'm in relapse. I'm in pain, I'm suicidal. I'm isolated and I shut off and keep myself to myself and go through all this pain on my own. And, and you know, that's very un unhealthy. And I stopped. As they say, an addict alone is his own worst enemy or her own worst enemy, as you know. Mm. And for me, you know, on, on that context of, you know, love. And for me, it's what I've learned over the years is that I have to, I have to continue with, continue to love myself yes so that i can love others i have to continue being gentle with myself so that i can be gentle with others and that blueprint of love and and, and having a healthy loving relationship i think it definitely stems back to our childhood early childhood years of you know if you've not witnessed it if you've not had it it's now building that foundation through doing the work and recovery and, and everything else that entails to have a healthy, loving relationship with myself so that I can have a healthy, loving relationship with others. And it, do and it doesn't have to be with that significant other, as you've just said, you've got a support mechanism and there's a lot of love that comes to you. Likewise, my support mechanism is small. You know, you read the acknowledgements on the back of my book, right? of the people that I'm saying, thank you for being there. Yeah. It's not pages and pages and pages. <laughs> it's one page. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So and that love from those family and friends who have actually been there for me through my journey. Do you know what I mean? And showed me that love, unconditional love. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, and through that, I guess it's that mirror uh, effect of you know when you hold up the mirror to oneself through the reflection of their love it helps me to love myself if that makes sense it makes sense but i've never been one of them that can look in the mirror and say oh i love you <laughs> it's just not me at all i can't not do yet. not yet but it makes <laughs> <coming back. laughs> back, brother keep coming back <laughs> I'm gonna, i can see you standing in that mirror soon man giving yourself a big hug you know, sometimes I have to do, because you know what, look, this is what the work's about, isn't it? I'll stay open-minded. Yeah, that's powerful, stay open-minded. I mean, this is what the work's about. I mean, now I watch documentaries, yeah? Because I love watching documentaries more than, I, mean, I love movies and whatnot, being an actor and all that stuff. You know, I like to keep my, my, my you know, my, my toe in the door, so to speak. 
But more than anything else, I love watching documentaries that reflects true life and what's going on. And when you hear people going on their own spiritual journeys, you hear them talking about now, it's all about loving yourself. It's all about, you know, veganism and eating healthily. It's all about holistic stuff, which is fantastic. And I think we need more of this because for a long time, us as a human race, I believe we've just been, we've been hiding behind our defects, our shortcomings, our past, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I, I, I chose to, to share my story through writing my memoir, because I realized that it can help others to, to, to acknowledge that they're not alone. You're not alone. Yeah. I'm not alone. You know what I mean? I do. And it's a powerful thing. And, you know, since coming back from this last relapse mentally and obviously within addiction, mm. I've seen the love from people because they've stuck by me. You know what I mean? And like you say, it's almost unconditional. I don't think it's fully unconditional because if I do certain things, then I could piss them off. And you know mm. what I mean? You yeah. know, so I have to stay having awareness around that stuff. And you know, at times I can piss people off. I, I'll tell you a quick story. I used to go to meetings at one point, and for first year I used to go there. The room would be full, and each seat at either side of me would be empty because no one wanted to come near me because of the way I must have carried myself at that point. Mm. You know, I was. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's not like that today, luckily. Um, mm. But at one point it was, you know, because like I said, I could be very resentful. People would piss me off. I don't like you. I don't like you. I do their thinking and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, I'd be competition in my head with them and, you know, yeah. it's weird stuff. And that's fair as well, because again, you know, again, I have to go back to our early days. I have to go back to our early days. Honestly, you know, you we can't not take for granted them early days of the trauma one faced, you know? Any any child, any child who went through half of what we went through, by the time we become adults, we're not gonna be, um, how can I say, just stable and normal and act like, you know, hey, I'm okay, you know, blah, 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 and just carry on with life. Yeah. At some point, it catches up with us. Do you see what I mean? Certainly. And what you're hearing from yourself and what I can relate to is we have an awareness of it. We're willing to do something about it. We're not playing the victim. We're saying, okay, we acknowledge what's happened and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yes. Like there's a lovely saying, I'm not responsible for what happened to me as a child. Yeah. But I am responsible for what happened to me as an adult. Yeah. That's my responsibility. Do you know what I mean? I do. Definitely. So, it's down to me how I now choose to write that next chapter of my life. You know, I have the power now. Where I was powerless, now I have the power. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And I choose, like you, you've given back. I mean, you've done tons. You know, you've given back. You've empowered others. You've helped others. Like myself, we've both given back, you know, um, and and allowed others to see that they don't have to go on the same journey. Do you know what I mean? You've done tons to help others, haven't you? 
Yeah, I mean, you, 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 I mean, it's all right me saying it, but you know, you, you kind of past shouldn't define your future. But sometimes I let that stuff get in the way of me, and it's not really. I don't know. It's something I need to move on from. I was talking to a right. friend about some therapy and something he'd done around trauma and stuff, and it's really helped him. So I mean, I'm gonna speak to him more about that and kind of take up that kind of stuff. I mean, at one point I did have my own psychotherapist, what I used to go to on a Saturday morning and pay for mm -hmm. and stuff. And and if I'm honest, it made me worse. I don't think I got the 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 things I needed from that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is, you know, my my take on that is whatever it takes, whatever it takes, you know, I've done tons of counselling over the years, tons of counselling. And for me, I found it highly beneficial because, it, again, it goes back to that paragraph you read. It's the child being heard. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Finally, after all these years, it was the child being heard. And the more I delved into the therapy way of life and, and, and the counselling, the more that I got to this stage where I realised that a lot of it, it, I wasn't to blame, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Not that one's playing the victim or whatever, but I wasn't to blame for a lot of the stuff. I wasn't to blame that my mum was schizophrenic and had a, a, a breakdown. I wasn't to blame that I ended up in children's homes and foster parents and shift from place to place in them early years. Do you see what I mean? So, of course, I'm accountable for when I was out and I was a bit of a ragamuffin and up to no good. But what I'm acknowledging is through the power of that therapeutic value of one human being helping another. Yeah. yeah. Um, I realised that, hold on a minute, I'm not alone with this. Do you know what I mean? And I deserve to be happy, joyous and free. Yeah. And for me to do that, I'm going to have to work for it. It's not mm -hmm. going to be handed to me on a plate, <laughs> you know? Exactly. I've got another friend that also says, you know, you can go to all this stuff, but miracles don't happen. You've got work to make the miracles happen. You can't get it from osmosis, for example, <laughs> from just sitting there. You've got to partake in that and you've got to put the work in. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. You know, um, Ben, we're going to have to wrap up. And but it, we can talk all day, honestly. We really could, you know. Your book, 51 Moves, powerful, powerful. You know, anyone out there listening, you have to listen, you have to read this book. Very powerful, very moving. Um, pleasure to have a chat with you, and I'm glad you was available. You know, you know, I've been in touch with you, and I've been messaging you, like, hey, you okay? What's going on? Get back to me, you know what I mean. Glad to have you back, mate. Glad to have you back. And honestly, I wish you well on your recovery and your journey. And, you know, reach out to me anytime. You know that. Um, and we can have a chat, yeah? You know, to finish like this kind of, I'm grateful that I'm present today and to be able to do this, you know, because a month ago, six weeks ago, I want present, as you know. Mm. And I feel so lucky to be clean, not quite serene, but getting there. <laughs> yeah. But just to be alive, because I didn't think I were coming back, Stanley. And, you know, in my head now, I have it. If I go again, I'm not coming back. No one's going to see me again. Yeah. And that is very raw in me right now. And I need to keep a hold of that, 
of where it last took me to and like I said earlier less of the talking more action and do the work and Absolutely. that's what I need to do just for today just for today just do the work you know we turn up and we show up for life you yeah. know what I mean and you know trust me Ben you're not alone mate you're not alone there's so many people out there who haven't gone through half of what we've been through and they feel exactly the same and some, you know what I mean? Um, because we're human at the end of the day, aren't we? You know, we're human. Yeah. Um, but mate, thank you for joining me on how do you feel now? And, you know, before we go briefly, how do you feel now? Better than I did a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Progression yes. better than perfection. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I feel an attitude of gratitude. Yeah. Um, I, I feel grounded and, and just, yeah, just grateful to be on this journey and, and grateful to be able to talk to people like yourself who have been on similar journeys and are here to share our stories to enable others and empower others to, to acknowledge that they're not alone and that it's okay to talk about this stuff, you know? So um, thank you again, and we'll leave it there. Nice My one. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Speak soon. Cheers. Soon. Cheers. This has been How Do You Feel Now with me, Stanley J. Brown. How Do You Feel Now is a production by Jacaranda Books publishers of my recently released memoir, Little Big Man, and is available in all major bookstores and online platforms where you can get your podcasts.